Two children stand, taking turns, reciting their alphabet. The first nails it. Doesn't miss a letter from A to Z. The second does pretty good, but omits the letters G and H. Quickly, the first child moves to lovingly correct him. Say, you forgot G and H. That's not how we say our ABCs. The second child responds, there are two ways to say your ABCs. I just did it my way. Quickly, a smiling teacher intervenes, says, no, no, honey. There's only one correct way to say our ABCs, and then continues to teach him the song. Truth corresponds to reality. Something is either true or it is false. And just as there is only one correct way to say your ABCs, there's only one way of salvation. The good news of the gospel is that anyone can get in on this. It's not fake news, not making it up. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can have peace with God. This makes Christianity the most inclusive, exclusive truth the world has ever known. It's for anybody who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ, but it excludes everyone who would reject Jesus. There is only one way of salvation. That's our main idea today. It's taken from verse 12. That Jesus is the only way of salvation. Then I want to exhort you, don't be ashamed of Jesus. And and I say that in particular because I I think many Christians, for whatever reason, are, um, when they encounter people in the world who say things like, all religions are equally valid, kind of shrink back and get a little bit ashamed. You know, they're accused of being uh, narrow-minded and arrogant. And we'll deal with some of those objections towards the back end of the sermon this morning. But, but I want to remind you to be unashamed of who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. It's always loving to tell the truth. There's no reason to be ashamed of it. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we come before you humbly this morning as a bunch of messed up people who have failed and faltered. And thank you that you have remained faithful. We thank you that you still speak, that you enable us to learn. Pray that you would give us ears to hear from you this morning, that your spirit would be present and and moving within us, that we might discern those truths from your word that are necessary for shaping us into the image of Christ. Pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts, that this just just wouldn't be a cognitive exercise or an emotional exercise, but a, a spiritual exercise in which these two things come together and real change takes place within us. Help us to love the truth 
Help us to love Jesus more deeply. This we pray in his name. Amen. So we've been working through the book of Acts, and this obviously takes context in in the book of Acts. And so let's review a little bit. If you remember, we've kind of summarized the whole book as saying, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. Jesus, after being resurrected from the dead, is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God early on in chapter 1. And then in verse 8, he tells them, the Holy Spirit is going to come, you're going to be empowered by my Spirit, and you are going to witness to the world from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth about who I am. Then in chapter 2, that happens, the Spirit comes down, some pretty crazy stuff happens, it comes like a mighty rushing wind, and there's light that's shaped like tongues, it comes above the disciples' heads, they're speaking in the languages of the people that have come from around the world in Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, he's speaking in my language instead of the normal Aramaic, what's going on? Somebody's like, hey, they're drunk, that's what's going on, and Peter's like, no, 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 you see, what's going on is Jesus has ascended to the throne as the Messiah who was promised, and he's poured out his Holy Spirit, friends. We are in a new season. The church has come. The Spirit of God is here. Jesus Christ is both Lord and Messiah. And you must repent of your sin and be baptized. You must follow Him. And the people respond by doing just that. They begin following Jesus. Got a glimpse a couple weeks ago of this early church. They're, they repent, they're baptized, and immediately we see them in the church, and they're spending time with each other all the time, sharing everything in common, talking of Jesus. They're an entirely new community. They're, they're a little slice of heaven on earth, a picture of what it will be like when Jesus returns to make all things new. It's inside the scope of this new community that Peter and John find themselves at the beginning of chapter 3 on their way to prayer in the temple. And it's at that point, a new character is introduced to the story. A lame man. A man who has not walked for any of his days throughout any of his over 40 years on earth. We're told that each day he's, he's put at the, the, before the gate called Beautiful, where he begs for alms. And this man who had woke up every day for over 40 years and rubbed the sleep out of his eyes knowing, I'm not going to walk today, encounters Peter and John on their way to say prayers. He's been there a long time. He, sees a good, he knows a good mark when he sees one. And he asks these guys, hey, hey, can you give me some money? Peter looks directly at him and he says those famous words, silver and gold, I have not, but what I do have I give to you. Get up and walk in the name of Jesus. This lame man is healed. I mean, he, he is leaping and he is jumping around the temple and all these people who know him because he's a fixture in that culture, they, they know this guy who would beg outside of the beautiful gates. Like, hey, is that John? Yeah, he used to, he always begs every day. And now he's, he's, he's walking, he's jumping. I mean, have you seen his vertical? It's awesome. That's, that's the, he's walking, what's, what's happening here? And the, the miracle serves the message, it always does. It sets Peter up to proclaim Jesus. Peter stands up and he says, why are you guys amazed by this? Like John and I didn't do this. Jesus has done this because Jesus is still alive. 
He says, Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the true and better Moses that we waited on. He's the one to whom we must listen. He is the one through whom the blessing of Abraham comes. He's the one through whom all the families of the world will be blessed. God has kept his promises. He's the suffering servant that took the sins of a rebellious people onto himself and then was exalted by God. This Jesus, he's the one. He's the one you can trust in and have your sins forgiven. It's in the midst of this teaching that we find Peter and John at the beginning of our text today, which is chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And we read, While they were still speaking to the people, the priests, the captain, the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. So Peter and John are teaching about Jesus, and two things in particular would have really, really annoyed the Sadducees and other people in the temple. Uh, The first is that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. And the second is that Jesus has risen from the dead. This would especially would have irked the Sadducees, uh, because if you paid attention long ago, there used to be uh, a little way to remember the Sadducees from the fairies, but the Sadducees were sad, you see, right? They're sad, you see, uh, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any resurrection at all, let alone one that took place for one man in the center of history, right? Like, Jesus has gotten up, they're saying. He's the fulfillment of prophecy, which means that they killed God's Messiah, right? So you can understand why they might be a little put off by that. Like, the one that, like, this guy, he styled himself as the king of the Jews. We killed him, and we still can't get rid of him. These guys are just talking about him. You know what will help them is, is a knight in the clink, We'll throw them into jail. We'll we'll help them sober up from whatever Jesus juice they're on. And in the morning, this teaching will be over. That's that's their plan. Quick word of application here. When I first read this, I went, all right, yeah, Peter and John, they're teaching, and they've kind of annoyed the the Sadducees. The application, though, is, is not be annoying, okay? Plenty of you manage that all on your own, I don't tell you. They're not annoying them by their personalities, but by their propositions. They're annoying the Sadducees by these propositional truths about who Jesus is. So I actually think that the application here is a little opposite of that, that we want to share the truth and we want to share it boldly, but we want to do so winsomely. uh, Peter tells us in a letter that he wrote uh, to always be ready to give a defense Always ready to give reason for the hope that exists within you. And he follows that up and says, but do so with gentleness and respect. And so I actually think what's missing from most of our Christian witnesses isn't the annoying factor, okay? <laughs> I think it's the, the gentleness and the respect and the winsomeness. We want to be a people that when others are off-put in terms of um, spiritual things, that they're not off-put by us, but by our Christ, by our Savior. I want to make sure that people don't trip over our arrogance or our sin, but that they're actually tripping over the cross. 
Peter and John are not seeking to annoy anyone. They're not purposefully trying to be off-putting. They're simply teaching about Jesus. And it lands them in jail. Until this point, things have been going really, really well for them, if you think about it. Right, Jesus told them the Spirit was going to come. Spirit shows up. Like They're preaching. People are being converted. They've healed a dude. Things are going really, really well. And now they're in jail. And, and I can't help but think, if they're like you and I are, immediately they're going, woe is me. God, do you even care about us? Are you even real, God? How, how could you let this happen to me? I've experienced all these these miracles. They've walked with Jesus, but if they're like you and me, they're immediately driven to despair upon the tiniest little inconvenience. I don't know what their faith looked like at this point, but I do have to think, would I be willing to go to prison for sharing Christ? What about you? Would you be willing to to go to jail because of your love for Jesus? And I think about it, I'm like, well, I would like to say yes. It's really easy to say yes from where I am. But would I? I've got, I've got kids. I've got a wife. Do I love Jesus enough to go to jail? Or do I love Jesus enough to even be a, a little bit inconvenienced in my life? Disciples are imprisoned, and even despite that fact, we read in verse 4, many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And so this thing is still blowing up, which blows my mind a little bit, because if I'm standing around and I'm listening to Peter and John preach about this Jesus, and all of a sudden they are arrested by the Sadducees, thrown into prison, I'm not going, those are guys I should follow. Can't wait to believe in that God and follow that Jesus and end up in prison. Like, eh, I'm going to be a little hesitant. But the growth of the gospel isn't, isn't dependent upon Peter and John. Right? They go into prison and it grows anyway. And here's my point. Jesus is going to, to build his church. He would like you to participate in that. If you, if you know God, you should be a part of that. You should be praying for the building of the church. You should be loving your neighbors. You should be sharing Christ. You should be giving to the building of the church in other countries. You should be doing all of that. But I want you to know that the success of the church isn't dependent upon your faithfulness. Praise God it's not. It's not dependent upon my faithfulness. Praise God it's not. It's dependent upon the God who keeps his promises. And so if I were to quit preaching the gospel, if our church were to cease to exist, it would cease to exist. But God's plan wouldn't be failing. God would still build his church, and the gates of hell would still fail to prevail against it. God doesn't need anyone to bring about his purposes. And his kindness He uses sinners that he's redeemed by grace. Likewise, he uses John and Peter, and he'll use them some more here. But eventually them and the 12 and all 120 of these folks in Acts will die. But God's church continues to grow without them. It's continued up 
for a couple thousand plus years now. And it will continue until Christ returns. Jesus is alive and he's building his church. And so Peter and John, while they are in prison, are not outside of God's will. God is still sovereignly growing the church. He still cares about Peter and John. He's still going to use them on down the road. And that's wonderful. But there is, a, there is a day that comes for Peter anyway. John gets to be in exile and write a letter and die when he's really old. But, but Peter eventually is crucified upside down for his faith. There comes a time where God doesn't deliver them from death. And that's okay. It's still good and kind of God. Even if, even if you can't discern how your suffering is going to bring honor and glory to God, how it's going to work out for your benefit, you can still trust that God's doing those things because he said he would. He said that everything that happens to you happens for you. That all those who have been called in faith to Christ Jesus can know that God is working all things for their good and for his glory. So even now as they sit in prison, God is at work. Well, the next day in verse 5, their rulers, elders, scribes now assemble in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. And so this is a who's who of all the power players in Jerusalem. They've all come together and they comprise this ruling body that's called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin has executive power, it has legislative power, it has judicial power. And so it's like the Supreme Court and the president and legislative branch all rolled up into one. And actually, uh, they have a what would have been, when Peter and John are standing before them, a half-moon kind of table that goes around them a little bit, semicircle. And so they're all looking at them, questioning them, almost surrounded. I picture it a little bit like if you remember when the PED scandal was going on in baseball, uh, and they have your, your player down there, whoever was on trial, and like they're surrounded by Congress and cameras, and Congress is like asking them a question, you know, did you use performance-enhancing drugs? And they're like, you know, no, never. I put on 40 pounds and my head got the size of three watermelons, but I never cheated. That's kind of seeing like they're surrounded. They're, these are powerful people. And they ask them, by what power or in what name have you done this? And do you, do you realize that this, what they've done, refers to healing the lame man? <laughs> they're on trial for healing a lame guy. Like this, the folks on this court are so blinded by their sin that they can't even see that the healing of a lame man is a good thing. Or are there areas of your life where you can't see really genuinely good things because of your hatred for others? Immediately, I think of ways that we are so partisan as a society like, if, if you're on the right and you can't see how, like, anything good about anyone on the left, that's probably problematic. And if you're on the left and you can't see anything good about those on the right, 
There's probably some sin in your life. It's probably blinding you to the genuinely good things that God does in the world. And we need to be on alert about how blinding sin can be, even to those of us who have been saved. And it's certainly blinding to the Sadducees here who are so concerned about their political position within Jerusalem and within Rome that they crucified Jesus, the Messiah, and now they've got Peter and John on trial for healing a lame man. Do you understand how ridiculous this is? You know how bad it is for society going around healing people that can't walk? What? But, but, like, and it always, this kind of thing always gets me because people will say to me, if God did miracles today, like he allegedly did in the first century, then I would believe. Or if I could just see uh, someone rise from the dead, then, then I would have faith in Jesus. And I go, no, you wouldn't. They didn't early on. They didn't in the New Testament. Jesus said, unless they believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody rises from the dead. Right? And what we see here is that they are completely blind to the spiritual realities around them. They're, they're dead in their sins. What I also want you to see is in verse 4, many of those who hear the message believe, but there's also many who don't. There's people there that see the lame man healed, they hear Peter preach, and they go on about business as usual. Others of them get mad. There are people that are in league with this, the Sadducees. They think they're doing the right thing. Reminds me of uh, John 11, my favorite story, I think, uh, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I want to show you this. Uh, remember, Lazarus is sick. Jesus doesn't show up right away, so that Lazarus uh, dies. He then comes and he cries with Mary, mourns over him, and then he, he quakes with rage, is what the word means. He gets angry at death, like he can't wait to return and make all things new. He can't wait to end evil. He can't wait to put an end to death. And so he's like, you know what? Right now, I'm just going to raise my friend from the dead because I, I can't wait. And so he rolls up his sleeves to do this miracle. And he says, hey, move the stone away. And they're like, Jesus, Lazarus is in there. It stinks. We're not going to roll the stone away. And he's like, do you want to see the glory of God? And so they roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And we read in verse 44, the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, hand and foot, with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. And here's what I want you to see. This is the response, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then we read what the Pharisees do in verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. You see how blind they are? He raises a guy from the dead, that can't be good for society. We better kill him. His disciples are healing lame people, that's not good. Gotta kill him. They're, they're arresting them. We got him on trial. What power or in what name have you done this? They ask. Here's Peter's response. Then Peter, 
was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, And whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders. Which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now what I want you to know is Peter has an opportunity here to answer with a really safe and political answer. Okay? They're like, by what power have you done this? And he could have gone, we did this by the power of the God of Israel. And they're all going to go, good answer. Or he could have said, isn't it wonderful that the man's healed? It certainly wasn't by our power. True statement. Keeps him out of trouble. But no. Peter responds by telling them the truth both about their sin and about Jesus. I mean, Peter, the same guy who like faked an accent when confronted by a little girl, like you were with them. Your accent gives you away. What are you talking about? I was not with them. That's my best French, I think. That Peter, cowardly Peter, courageously speaks truth to power and says, I am healing by Jesus. The guy that you killed and you can't get rid of. He's still alive and he's still healing. And you need to put your faith in him. Notice, and this is going to be a pattern in Acts. Peter is filled by the Holy Spirit and then he talks about Jesus. Every time somebody's filled with the Spirit in Acts, they start exalting Jesus. Let me tell you something, friends. Any preaching or teaching that doesn't make Jesus big and everything else small probably isn't good teaching. Just because somebody is on Christian TV, Christian radio, Christian bookstore, doesn't mean that they love Jesus. Hold what they're teaching up next to Scripture. Is is Jesus big? Is it faithful to the Word of God? Is Jesus used as a means to an end? Is, Is Jesus just the way that you get a better house, have a better family life, make more friends? Is Jesus just the way that you get your best life now? Or is he beautiful? Is he worthy of all honor and glory and worship and praise? Is he honored as God? Or is he utilized as a tool? Is he useful or is he beautiful? Because when there's power in the preaching and teaching, when it is the word of God, you will discover Jesus is beautiful. Peter is filled with the Spirit and he tells them a beautiful truth about the ugliness of their sin and the one way to salvation. And this is not hateful. It is infinitely loving. Because if Jesus really did die for sin, if he really did raise from the dead for our justification, if hell really is the destination of all who reject Christ, then it is hateful to not tell people about Jesus. 
that this is loving. Imagine you woke up one morning and uh, you, you just got, jumped in your car, you had somewhere to go, and as you were cresting a hill, you recognize that the bridge is out. You get your brakes on you know, just in time. And you sit in your car and you go, nobody else knows about this yet, so I have a decision to make. And you're like, well, got my sweatpants and my t-shirt on, which is pretty much every day for me, but maybe that's unusual for you. I my sweatpants, my t-shirt, like my Crocs, I'm not looking very fashionable. So if I get out and I warn other people, I look a little silly, eh, I'm just going to drive home. That's pretty hateful. It's not loving your neighbor. But if you decide, I don't care how I look, there's a problem here. If you love those who are going to be driving up the same hill to the same danger, if you love them, you're going to get out of your car and you're going you're to go, Hey! The bridge is out! And some of them are going to go, that guy's crazy, and keep on driving right to their death. Others will consider you and stop just in time. And others will stop right away. The point here is that it's loving of you to tell them that the bridge is out and that they're headed to destruction. Likewise, it is loving of you to tell the people about the wages of their sin, which is death, an eternity under God's wrath. It is loving for you to tell them there's a way out of God's wrath and into God's presence. There's a way into right relationship with God. That, that's loving. Peter's proclamation here is loving. And, and so, Christian, boldly and unashamedly proclaim Jesus. It's loving. And don't be a jerk about it. Don't be annoying about it. Be kind and gracious. But be bold. Share. Notice, Peter calls them to the carpet about their sin. And then he roots the truth of what he's saying in history and in prophecy. First, in verse 10, we see that he's rooting it in recent history. Says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Jesus, who you killed, like that happened in space and time, well, he's resurrected, God raised him from the dead, and he's healing this man through us. He is alive. He is ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven. That's the historical claim. Now he makes a claim from prophecy. He says, Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118 that we read this morning. Remember the stories about a king who's rejected and humiliated, and then he's risen up in honor and vindicated. And what, what Peter is saying here is you all saw Jesus and you determined this guy is worthless, right? You rejected him. This cornerstone used to be built. It was kind of like a foundation for a building. Determine the direction, location of the building. Put it down first. And they looked at Jesus and they went, this is no cornerstone. This is a worthless stone. And they threw it to the side. And then God has taken this stone, Peter says, and made it the cornerstone, 
to build a new people. And so here's the picture you have. You have the Jewish establishment rejecting Jesus as the Savior, and you have God, they're the builders, you have God saying, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one I'm going to build through. I'm going to build my people, the church, by this cornerstone. Peter employs the same verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read you verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, it's Jesus, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built together to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving. The stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over, the rock of offense or a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is making his people through Jesus. That's why Jesus declares himself to be the way, the truth, in the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. It's why Peter says here, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. There's no other way to be saved. But, the objection goes, isn't that narrow and arrogant to think that you have the one true way to God, the one true religion. Isn't it better to think about all the religions in the world this way? Like, like God is kind of like an elephant. And there are four blind men. And then the first blind guy, he, he grabs the trunk of the elephant and determines God is like a snake. And the second blind man, he wraps his arms around the, the feet of the elephant and says, no, God is like a, a tree. And third blind man, he's got the, the tusk or spear of the or tusk of the elephant and says, God is, is like a spear. There's a fourth one, he's got his hands on the side of the elephant. God is like a wall. You see, each of them, they just have a part of the truth. But all of these truths, they tell us about the one God. Isn't that a better way? a more accepting and loving way to think about religions in the world. They're all equally valid. They all have parts of the truth. You think, is that a better way? No. Here's why, two reasons. First reason, in the illustration of the elephant, someone sees the whole elephant, all right? The person that's sharing that illustration with you is claiming, I see what God's really like. And everybody only has a piece of him. See that? And so what they're saying is, I think it's better to view 
all religions as equally valid, and I think you should too. Let me translate that for you, though. They're saying, I have a particular view of God because to view all religions as equally valid is a particular view of God. They're saying, I have a particular view of God, and if you don't adopt it, you're narrow-minded and arrogant. See? Logic is self-contradicting. If it's narrow and wrong to say that there's one true way to God, that there's one true religion, then it's also narrow and wrong and arrogant to say there's only one true way to think about all religion. And so they actually commit the the hypocrisy they accuse the Christian of. Second reason that this way of viewing religion doesn't work is that if we're going to use the elephant analogy, uh, Christianity believes that the elephant opens up his mouth and says, hey, I'm an elephant. We believe in a God who speaks, who has revealed himself in his word and in the person and work of Jesus Christ and confirmed it through signs and miracles and wonders and the resurrection. Our faith is built on historically verifiable facts passed down to us from eyewitnesses faithfully. We believe it's true. Here's another objection. When we say that Christianity is the only way to God, Jesus is the only way. It comes from a category confusion. So some people, I think most people in our culture today, view religion as if it were a subjective truth. And they confuse that with objective truth. Let me give you an example. So, I might say, it's cold in here. And some of you might go, it's really hot in here. <gasps> it's hot in here. And it's true for you that it's hot in here. It's true for me that it's cold in here. We can argue about it. If it happens like it does in my house, we might bump the thermostat up a little bit. You know, sometimes I'll sneak back and turn off the fans on Herschel, right? Did it today. It's cold. But it's true, like, when somebody says it's true that they're hot, it's true that I'm cold. Those things are true. And so what happens, people view religion this way, kind of like picking a sports team or picking a vacation spot. Whatever's helpful or whatever works for you, whatever makes you feel good, that's great. That religion's true for you. Great. But religion doesn't work like that. It's not about what just works for you or what makes you feel good. It's about what's true. It's an objective claim that's being made. So let me give you another example. It's the difference between the I'm hot, I'm cold discussion, subjective truth, and objective truth. This is when your friend comes to you and says, brother, I can breathe underwater. You're like, what? No, you you can't breathe underwater. No, I'm telling you, I believe I can breathe underwater. It's true for me. And you're like, "If if you go underwater, with something heavy holding you down and no, you know, breathing apparatus, you're going to discover you can't breathe underwater. No, no, I believe I can. If I puff my cheeks out, get some gill action, and breathe, man. No, you can't breathe underwater. Truth corresponds to reality. It's objectively true. Human beings cannot breathe underwater. The truth matters. I learned this firsthand. I I recently visited my friend in Philadelphia, and he gave me a pop quiz. Uh, He said, Justin, you know, you you have an advanced degree. I think you're semi-intelligent sometimes. What's the capital 
of Pennsylvania. I said, he's trying to trick me here. What is the capital of Pennsylvania? So we're in Philadelphia. Philadelphia? So no. It says it's Harrisburg. And immediately I said, no, it's not. Harrisburg? Who's even heard of that place? So we argued for a little bit. It didn't matter how hard I argued that Philadelphia was the capital of Pennsylvania. Because, like, really, Harrisburg? Come on. The reality of the matter was that Harrisburg is the capital of Pennsylvania, which I had to, you know, Google to double check. It is. You can sincerely believe something, and you can be sincerely wrong. Truth corresponds to reality, and as Christians, we believe our faith corresponds to reality. Believe it's true. We believe it's the only way to God. Only through Jesus. If there's, if there's another way to God, Christianity doesn't make any sense. If there's another way for you to have peace with God and forgiveness of your sins, then the cross is superfluous. It doesn't matter. You think if there was another way to God, that God the Father would have sent God the Son to come and live a perfect life in your place and to die a substitutionary death in your place on the cross and then rise him up from the dead? Maybe if there was another way, if there was any other way to have peace with God, that an answer would have came to Jesus when he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. Do you not think that the Father would have said, hey, there's absolutely another way. Don't worry about cross thing. Done. There was no other way except for Jesus to die for your sin. To raise for your justification. There's, there's no other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name by heaven by which you can be saved. There's no other name. There's no one like Jesus. No one has ever descended to earth into the womb of a virgin like Jesus. No one has ever been born of a virgin like Jesus. Nobody's ever turned water to wine like Jesus. Nobody's ever caused the lame to walk like Jesus. Nobody's ever called the blind to see like Jesus. Nobody's ever calmed a storm by the word of his mouth like Jesus. Nobody's ever fed thousands upon thousands of people with a kid's lunch like Jesus. Nobody has raised the dead like Jesus. Nobody has died on the cross like Jesus. Nobody has risen up out of the tomb like Jesus. Nobody has ascended to the throne in heaven like Jesus. Nobody's poured out their spirit spirit like Jesus. Nobody is ruling and reigning like Jesus. No one says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest like Jesus. And he says it. He does. No one says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who trusts in me, though he die, yet shall he live like Jesus. No one promises to come back and to make all things new like Jesus. No one promises to wipe every tear from your eye and to make all things new like Jesus. There's no one like him. There's only one way to God. It's through Jesus. And it's open to everyone who will lay down their sin 
Turn from it and follow Him. Come to Him and He will give you rest. Christian, delight in Him. Rejoice in Him. Don't be ashamed of Him. He's the most magnificent human being that's ever lived. He is our King and our God. Don't shy away from saying, there's only one way to God. Through the God-man, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. And you can get in on this. You just need to believe. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Let's pray. God, there is no one like you. There's no other religion like Christianity. All of the other ones implore us to work, and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and to find our way to you. But you've given to us Jesus. In Christianity, you say, friends, my children, you could never get to me on your own. But I have come to save you. I have come to rescue you from your sin and from death. I have come to rescue you from the eternity of wrath that you deserve. Not because you're good or because there's anything good within you, but because I'm good. I'm gracious. Because I love you. God, there is no one like you. Thank you for this salvation. Help us to share it lovingly. Help us to worship you. Help us to really be the family you've called us to be. Don't don't let us come in here and say that we are the family of God and then live our lives as orphans. Let us live as your children. Children of the light because we've been united to the light of the world, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.